Psalms, and really with this theme that we're focusing on, that it's the Psalms and the Bible as a whole, God's Word, that shapes our hearts. That actually, as we participate in the worship of God's people, and psalms were quite oftentimes uh, used in worship, songs that people would sing, is that that is a shaping process for us. We're going to talk this morning about the process of being shaped from fear into trust. From those who are fearful of many things, into those who are trusting in the Lord even in the midst of our fears. We're in Psalm 27 this morning, so if you have a Bible with you, you can follow along with me. It's also printed in your bulletin. I'll read the whole psalm for us. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and my foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and I will make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, I do seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for Psalm 27 and for your word. We ask that you would soften our hearts this morning, open our ears and our eyes that we might see you, and that you might transfer us, Lord, from those who are oftentimes so fearful to those who trust you, who rest in you, who are confident in you and what you do. Lord, will you shape us in that way this morning? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I was born in 1973, which is the same year that a young filmmaker, 26-year-old man named Steven Spielberg, uh, made a movie called Jaws, which also means that, uh, you know, right about the time that Jaws was starting to come out on, like, VHS, I was, you know, almost old enough to see it. And I, probably like many of you, and like many people in this country, was shaped by Jaws. 
and shaped, I mean, in that it scared me to death. And I did not want to go by water, and I did not want to go to the beach, for sure. But, like, I wanted to stay away from all kinds of water. So, like, the river, I thought maybe there's a shark in the river. The pool, I mean, who knows? Sharks get, get in the pool, there may be a shark attack. That was actually a phenomenon across the country. Uh, people were afraid to go to the beach after they watched Jaws because it scared them so deeply. And it's interesting, right, because there are not that many shark attacks that happen. There are a lot of other things to be afraid of. But because Jaws was so powerful and because it really overtook, you know, so much of our communal mind, this deep fear just kind of came upon us as a country that we don't want to go to the beach, we don't want to get in the water because who might be an enormous shark. I saw some research done on this and actually um, Americans particularly don't get attacked by sharks very often. 0.92 Americans die each year from a shark attack. Okay, Less than one person dies each year from a shark attack. And in this article that I was reading, they actually listed some other things that maybe should scare you a little bit more than shark attacks. So, for instance, here's some other things that happen. Trampolines kill 1.1 American per year, which is more than shark attacks. Okay, I don't have a shark in my backyard. I do have a trampoline in my backyard. I should probably be worried. Freestanding kitchen ranges, 1.3 deaths per year are accounted for with freestanding kitchen ranges. Okay, Vending machines. Vending machines kill two Americans a year. And now I'm not talking the Cheetos in the vending machine. I'm talking the vending machine. Okay, It kills two people per year. They die because of vending machines. And then really bringing in, and um, overwhelmingly, the largest on this list, 26 people, 26 Americans a year are killed by their TV falling on them. Okay? 26 more, you are 26 more times likely to get attacked by a television than you are a shark. So get off the couch and go to the beach. Okay? It's a lot safer. Fear is interesting how it works in us though, right? I mean, of course, there are overwhelmingly more things that are more dangerous than television attacks. But, you know, fear is just this interesting thing that can get a hold of us in really odd ways. Some of us in this room um, really do deal with debilitating fears. The kind of things that make it hard to get up in the morning or to interact with people or to do particular activities. Things that you know, I am deeply afraid of these things and, and it has changed the way that I interact with the world. But here's the thing that I think may even be more dangerous. Is that all of us are dealing with fears down below the surface that we may not even be sure are there. We're not really even sure they exist, but they are driving so much of what we do. They are driving our actions, they are driving our thoughts, they are driving our mentality, they are driving the way that we interact with the world. For instance, a deep fear of not being significant or important. That just subtly changes the way that you interact with people. So that you are kind of sprinkling all of your conversations with just a little bit of, here are the achievements that I've kind of achieved over the last week or so. Here are the little things that I think are going to build me up in my conversation with you so that you can think I'm a little more important, a little more significant than you did before we had that conversation. Or a deep fear of not knowing what's next. 
that means that I end up controlling kind of everything in my life. Planning everything out to the 20th and 30th kind of possibility. And everything in my life is in control, which means that all the people in my life are also controlled, maybe even manipulated by me. Because I have a deep fear of not knowing what's next. So I've got to kind of take control of it. Or maybe the fear you deal with is the fear of loneliness. The fear that if you are alone, if you don't have somebody beside you, that things are not going to go well for you. And so your life has actually been just kind of a history of serial relationships. Serial relationships with people that you just want to be next to whoever has a pulse. Because if you're next to somebody else, it's going to just make you feel like life is going to be okay. Or maybe you have a fear that is uh, of pain or difficulty. And so for most of your life, you've avoided anything that's hard. You've avoided doing anything that's difficult because you have a deep fear that if somehow something goes wrong, you're not going to be okay. Now, if we were checking boxes there, I would probably select E, all of the above, because I've dealt with all of those. And to some extent, there's probably one of those things, or maybe it's something else completely, that is dominant in your life, but my guess is probably they're also kind of mixed up in different ways. So how do we go from being driven by fear, people who are driven by their fears, to those who are driven by a trust in the Lord? That's really what Psalm 27 is about. It's a psalm that is calling us to come to the Lord with our fears, to bring those fears to Him, and to transfer our fear into trust. To translate our fears into trust in the Lord who cares for us. We're going to walk through kind of a four-step process on how to do that. And just a four-step way of what it looks like to transfer and translate your fears into trust in the Lord. And it's not an easy thing. It's not an overnight thing. It certainly is a process. And it's not easy in four steps, but I'm having to do it in four steps here so that we can think about it. And for those of you who have the fear of not knowing uh, and you want to be in control, I'll tell you what they are right now so you can know. Uh, Those four steps are that we've got to know our fears. We've got to know the Lord and His character and His actions. We move toward Him in worship, and then we wait for Him. That's the four-step process. So let's jump into that real quick. That first one, what does it mean that we've got to know our fears? We'll look at verse 2 of, of, chapter, of, excuse me, of Psalm 27. David says, When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and my foes. It is they who stumble and fall. And then in in verse 3, Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not feel fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. Most uh, commentators, scholars that you read, would say that these are not hypothetical things. These are actually real things that David is dealing with. Things like war and people who are actually coming to kill him and uh, armies encamped against him. In fact, most scholars will say that the context of this psalm comes out of David fleeing from his son Absalom. His son Absalom, when David is the king, uh, really starts a coup to try and take over the throne. He starts a rebellion and he chases David really out of the city and David's on the run. He's fleeing from not just somebody who wants to take his throne, but his own son. And so these ideas of attacks are real. He knows what he's afraid of. Now, most of us are probably not being attacked and probably not being attacked by our own children. But the thing is, we have to know what our fears are, just like David. We have to be aware of what's going on if we're actually going to see any change. If we're going to move from fear to trust, we have to know what we fear. There's a psychological term called conditioning. 
And an interesting study that was, that was done many years ago with this baby whose name was Albert. I don't know Albert what, but just baby Albert was his name. And a very groundbreaking study with this child is this little baby and a happy little baby and they put him in a room and they surrounded him with, with mice, but like cute kind of cuddly mice. And he, he loved the mice, he liked to play with them, he liked watching them run around. And then they put one white mouse in in the group. And every time he would get close to maybe trying to touch the white mouse or when the white mouse would get close to him, they'd play a really scary sound in the background. And he started to be uh, to associate the scary sound with the white mouse and even more so associate the color white with fear. And so he grew up really his childhood, most of his childhood, being afraid of anything that was white. Like he would not sit on Santa's lap because he was afraid of the big fluffy white beard. That's conditioning. That's what psychologists call conditioning. The idea that we are condi- our actions are conditioned by our deep fears. Now, here's... Here's why I'm telling you this. It's because if we're going to go about the process of getting to know ourselves, getting to know our fears, then we've got to take that conditioning process and kind of flip it over and work it backwards. This is what I mean by that. Is that when you start to look at your actions, when you start to look at the things that you do, and particularly the things that you do habitually, they will be a good indicator of the things that you fear. For instance, if I am always controlling the people around me, If I am always planning in such a way uh, that really is kind of absurd, out again to the 10th, 12th, 15th kind of um, step, if the people around me are saying, man, Derek, you just kind of always want me to do what you want to do. You're always kind of telling me exactly where to go. You're always telling me how to do all the things in my life, and I feel like I'm always living under your thumb. Then that's probably a pretty good indication that I have a deep fear somewhere down below of, uh, of not being in control, right? Of not knowing what's next. That when it comes down to it, if you were to say, hey, you don't know what's coming up in your life, how does that make you feel? I would say, can't do it. I won't be okay. So we're able to trace backward from our actions to our fears that start to reveal in us what are the things that we're most deeply afraid of. Now, you're going to need help with this. We all do. We're going to need help with this process because it's not an overnight thing. It's not a quick fix. It is a process of revealing things. Some of us will need the help of a professional counselor to be able to sit down in front of a professional to be able to uncover some of those things. All of us will also need the help of friends. One of our core values at Hope is that truth experienced in community produces change. That we aren't just those who come to the truth on our own and are changed. We actually need to be in community. Friendship is important. God has made some of us introverts, but he has made none of us to be alone. He has made none of us to be loners. We need each other for this process of even discovering the things that we hold deeply in our hearts and the things that we're most fearful 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 of. We need one another to do that. To enter into long conversations together. To be able to gently reveal, friend, you seem to want me to do everything that you want to do all the time. Can we talk about that? What might be going on in your heart? We need friends who are able to have that kind of courage to say that kind of thing to us. So there's the first step. Is that we enter in this process with others of discerning what are the things that we fear. We come to know what we fear. And like the great theologian G.I. Joe said, knowing is half the battle. And it's good that we know. 
Now, knowing, of course, is only half the battle, because if you only know what you fear, then you could easily be overcome by that thing. So this next step is really important. Here's the second step, is that not only do we need to know our fears, we need to know the Lord more deeply than we know what we fear. We need to know the Lord's character, and we need to know his actions. Look back again at this psalm in verse 2. Excuse me, verse 1. This is what David says. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? He mentions three pieces of God's character right out of the gate. Right in verse 1, he says the Lord is light. He is salvation. He is a stronghold. Friends, all of those things are things that push out fear. Okay, if you are afraid of not knowing what's next, then it's actually the light that is going to be the thing that exposes that for you. It's the light of God that casts out our fear. It's the salvation of God that enables us to trust Him. It's the stronghold of God that enables us to put ourselves, even our fearful hearts, in His hands, knowing that He will protect us. And David doesn't just talk about God's character, he actually talks about God's action. Flip over to verse 5. He says this, For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high on a rock. He will hide me in his shelter. The Lord will actually take care of me and shelter me. He will bring me into his tent in an intimate, personal way. He will care for me. He will set me on a rock where I'm safe, where I actually have an advantage against my enemies. The Lord will care for me. That is who he is and what he does. Don't you find it amazing that David, in the context particularly that he was in, he's on the run. He's being attacked by armies, armies that are led by his own son. And what David says is that I won't fear those armies who seem like they're breathing down my neck. I will actually put my trust in the Lord instead. How can he do that? How can a guy who's being attacked all around him say the Lord is my stronghold? The Lord is the one who will bring me into his tent. The Lord puts me on a rock. It's because he's actually been conditioned in a different way. He has been conditioned to know the Lord's character. To know the Lord's actions. He's seen it. He's experienced it. He's seen the Lord act before. He has experienced the Lord's character before. And so he knows the scales are like this. My fears have no, uh, they have nothing in compared to the Lord's glory, his care, his protection, his might. You've probably seen this if you've been to a a neighborhood pool or a public pool. You see a little kid who's playing around in the two-inch deep water. And he is scared to death to move into anything deeper. Anything that is higher than his shins, he's not even going to get near it, right? But then you see a mother or a father come in. And they move into five-foot, six-foot water, whatever it is. And they stand in the water and they say, come jump to me. And that kid, with reckless abandon runs and jumps into the arms of his father or his mother into water that he would get nowhere near if he or she weren't there. Because he's been conditioned that the importance that his father's or his mother's care and love and concern for him so greatly outweighs his fear is that he knows who's there to catch him. And it drives out his fear. If we're going to move from fear to trust, 
We have to know first what we fear, but even more so who it is that we are to trust in. The character, the actions of God. Here's the third step. The third thing that we do is that we actually move toward the Lord in worship. We move toward God in worship. Look at verse 4. What David says, he says, One thing have I asked of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in His temple. And then if you skip down um, kind of to verse uh, uh, 8, excuse me, I'm sorry, verse 6, David says this, And now my head will be lifted up above my enemies all around me. I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and I will make melody to the Lord. David is talking here about worship. Being in the presence of God in a temple, the place where God's people would come and worship. The place where God had told his people, This is where I am present, where you will offer sacrifices to me, where you will gather to sing. And isn't it amazing that David, who's out away from his home, he's been driven from the, uh, from the confines of, of the city, and he's out probably hiding in a cave somewhere, and the thing that he says is most on his mind, that he's most concerned with, that he wants most, is not a nice shower and his own bed, which is what I would have wanted. It's not the comforts of the, of, of the king's castle or even the king's harem. It's not the, the place to sit on the throne and just be happy that here I am ready to rule. What he wants is worship. The thing he wants more than anything else. The thing that drives him is he wants to come and to worship the Lord. And I think he wants to do so in a couple of ways. He wants to come and proclaim the goodness, the glory, the beauty of the Lord who gives him this trust. He wants to express who the Lord is. But he also knows that that's where he's going to be shaped. That's where he's going to be conditioned. That it's actually in participating in worship, in singing those songs, in coming before the Lord's, uh, before the Lord's presence and His Word, that his heart will be shaped and conditioned to be one who trusts in Him more, most deeply. That's another one of our core values. That worship for us is to be expressive. We are to be those whose mouths pour out what is in our hearts. But it's also to be formative. A shaping experience for us. That what we put on our mouths should also feed our hearts. That when we come together and we sing His praises. That when we open ourselves up to His word. When we come and we receive that food from His table. That it actually does something to us. It conditions us to know who He is. To know the Lord's character, His goodness, His care, His actions. Here's the fourth one. I'll close with this. Is that finally we are called to wait on the Lord. This is probably the hardest thing. Because even when we have done the hard work of knowing our fears... Even when we have done kind of the hard work of getting to know the Lord and His character and His actions, even when we are present in worship and putting ourselves in front of uh, the shaping aspects of worship, still we oftentimes have to wait on Him. If you are fearful of insignificance, of not feeling important, the temptation and the voice coming from the culture is, fix it now. Do something that will stop you being afraid. Do something that will take that feeling away. But what the Lord is telling us is, no, wait on me. Wait on me to fill you. 
If you're afraid of being alone, what the culture tells you is go find somebody now. It doesn't really matter who it is. Be with somebody so that you can get rid of that fear. And God is telling us, no, wait. Wait on me. And here's what's so beautiful about it. And this is where we actually have a much better perspective than David. We're in a better position than David who wrote this psalm. Because we can trust the Lord who not only promises that he is going to do something, but who has already done everything that we need. See, if you are afraid of not being important or insignificant, if you're afraid of being insignificant, what you need to hear is Jesus looking at your eyes and saying, I have given you my righteousness. I have clothed you with my robes. I have adopted you into my family. You are a child of the king. What could be more significant than that? What could be more important than being loved by the creator of the universe? He's already done it. He's already given it to us. If we have a fear of being lonely, what we need to to hear is Jesus looking at us and saying, I've brought myself as near to you as anybody ever possibly could. The spirit is within you. No one ever has and no one ever will be as intimate with you as I am. It's already happened. If we have a fear of not knowing what's next, we need to hear Jesus look at us and say, not only am I in control of all things, but I'm currently making them all new. I'm renewing the world and I know what's next, even if you don't. And if we're afraid of pain, if we have a deep kind of fear of something that's difficult, that's really keeping us from ever engaging in anything hard, we need to hear Jesus look at us and say, I've I've done the hardest thing it's ever been. I've taken the pain. I've taken the deepest pain. I've taken your pain upon myself so that you can wait for me. So that you can know my love. So that you can know my character. And so that you can wait. Friends, that's what it means to transfer our fear into trust. It doesn't, it's not overnight. It's not going to happen immediately. But when we put ourselves before the Lord, He is faithful to do exactly what He said. Let me pray for us, and then we'll have a couple of minutes to ponder that together. Father, thank you for this wonderful reminder of who you are. Uh, thank you, Lord, for, uh, for calling us to the difficult work of, uh, of even knowing the fears that drive us. The difficult work, Lord, of, um, uh, of knowing who you are and getting to know your character more deeply. Lord, to, to the beautiful opportunity that we have to come and put ourselves in your presence and with others as we worship you. And for, Lord, even the beautiful opportunity to wait, to engage that with courage and strength, to actively wait upon you to be the one who will do exactly what you've promised to do. We do pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.